0: Hello and welcome to Machine Centric Science. My name is Donnie Winston and I'm here to talk about the FAIR principles and practice for scientists who want to compound their impacts, not their errors. Today we have special guest Patrick Huck, currently at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory in Berkeley, California, United States, a former colleague of mine.
1: Uh, How are you, Patrick? I'm good. Thank you for having me today. love doing podcasts.
0: All right. Um, so, Patrick, uh, can you uh, tell our listeners who don't know about you just a little bit about the kind of roles you play in, in research data and, like, why I might be interested in talking to you on this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> that's,
1: that's, a big, that's a big question. Um, yeah, I'm a computer systems engineer in the Materials Project. Um, Christine Pearson is the director of the Materials Project. We. Uh, do first principle calculations for materials and try to um, give them out to the public, share them with the public. Our data is kind of trying to follow all the, the latest standards in terms of um, uh, sharing it with the public, providing programmatic access, providing interactive access, um, making it reproducible. Uh, we're now at about 200,000 users, over 200,000 users in materials project. Um, recently moved to the cloud so we're trying to also modernize our infrastructure in that case and along the way we've uh, refactored our data infrastructure too which goes along with the fair principles that you've mentioned so i've been a materials project since 2014 so i've been around this before that i was in high energy physics so i've done a lot with data there um so it's 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 been a, it's been a journey as far as data data is concerned cool
0: yeah um i'm just pulling up the the contributor roles taxonomy (laughs) um (laughs) just for reference because i don't know it it might be nice and just what i what i noticed for you is like um some of the roles you play are number one data curation you're real heavy on Mm -hmm. that um Mm -hmm. so i mean you help annotate scrub data maintain the data and you know what's what's doing for that um you're also big on the resources roles um you know you in terms of provision of uh, instrumentation, computing resources, other analysis tools, you're yes. kind of like a huge role of that, of supporting yeah. the research. Um, yeah. You're also big on, on software is another role there, right? Just yeah, implementing, yeah. designing yeah, programs, yeah. supporting systems, and also yeah, uh, yeah. validation, you know, helping to people to validate all the research activity, overall replication, reproducibility of the results, experiments, the outputs. Um, so super huge uh you play a, a big role um, in that research yeah. activity and i just want to point that out because um you know a lot of people think about research contribution is like oh did are you the first author on a paper or did you like design the it's study fine. but like there are so many hugely important roles that's recently been recognized by the credit uh taxonomy and in, in terms of making things fair findable yeah. or reusable like you know we need people that are um referred to Oftentimes, as RSCs, research software engineers, or, or infrastructure, yeah. or that sort of thing, to like make the research work and the whole enterprise work. Yeah. Um, and so,
1: yeah, yeah. absolutely. Right. I think that's a that's a big big topic in science generally. Like, what are the career paths for people that are? Um, software engineers that are also scientists or maybe scientists first and software engineers second and have gone that route. Right. And uh, and it's not like there's H indexes for people like me in terms of publications. Right. So so kind of quantifying what our role is uh, as, as engineers that have a scientific background in science is is, is a tough topic. you right. Yeah.
0: Uh, well, one thing that's fortunate for uh the U.S. government and then the <laughs> national lab and LBL is, is that um, they've managed to hang on to you. So I guess your role, yeah. what I recall was, uh, you know, you were a postdoc initially. That was kind of the way they could slot you into the infrastructure. But eventually, you know, you're now um, part of the staff, uh, technical staff. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's really exactly. important. OK, yeah, cool. Oh, OK, so let's 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 dive into some of the the, the fair uh, principles. So I, I before the show, I forwarded you um, some of the fair implementation profile questions from the ontology and enabling resources. Um, mm-hmm. And I just wanted to go over a, um, a few of these and like what your thoughts are in terms of, of your work. Uh, mm-hmm. One thing uh, that uh, we were talking about a little bit is identifiers. So, <laughs> you know, identifiers play, play play a big role. So like, like um, what are some of the, identifier services that you're involved with were like, you know, things that will guarantee the uniqueness of an ID and like that will make it persistent and you can resolve it to like, whatever it is like, like what different things are involved with like,
1: IDs for things with materials. That, that's that's a really good question because it's not as easy in when you're making references to data. But the biggest one, the biggest player in this space for us, has been uh, the Office of Scientific Te- and Technology Te- Technological Information. It's called OSTI, and they provide um, digital object identifiers for DOE ob- uh, DOE projects for free. Right. Yeah. One thing they've started is historically it's all been for pdfs right to get a doi for a pdf or DUI for for a technical document or whatever but assigning dois as persistent identifiers or links to data is a little harder so they've they've worked on that uh with us since i think 2016 2017 and we've started um assigning digital object identifiers to every one of our materials so every one of our materials uh, has a unique landing page on our end, on the materials project, has a unique identifier. Don't go into what that looks like uh, later, but that landing page then goes into the metadata of a dig- digital object identifier of a DOI. That metadata is maintained on the, on the OSTI site. They provide the infrastructure for minting those uh, DOIs and making sure that those links are always live. And we've become over the years with now, I think, 147,000 DOIs, their biggest data client. right? So there is a lot a lot of information just contained in the DOI metadata for the materials that we provide to the public. So I'd say that's the biggest one.
0: Cool. Um, yeah, we, I remember when yeah. you started that.
1: <laughs> you were, they,
0: were, they called you the, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, their, their star client. <laughs>
1: There's our Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're still their store client, I yeah. think. <laughs> um, yeah, the tough part there was kind of catching up early on because um, minting DOIs is a process that takes overnight and there's only so much throughput we could get. Um, but yeah, at this point, we're just kind of staying up to date with new materials that we put out. We we assign DOIs to it. Uh, we're also using that service um, for uh, not only our materials detail pages, but also other things we need to kind of get permanent uh, references on that may be a list of materials that somebody has contributed. Right? We we sometimes get suggestions for calculations for structures. We go and we calculate them, but we leave the credit with the person who made the suggestion to 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 calculate that structure. And then we have landing pages. I think that's that was back in the day also when you implemented those landing pages that we could assign UIs to, and we have the UIs that 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 do that. So it, it cannot our UIs are not only linked to like one entry in our database but could also be linked to a list of entries in our database, right? Um, and uh, the third thing I would mention is uh, we have contributed data. So we're starting to um, assign DOIs UIs to, to landing pages to that contributed data. It can take all sorts of shapes, shapes and forms, right? The infrastructure for it is all the same, right? We're, we're, we're generating, automatically generating metadata from the entries that we have in our database and then forwarding that metadata as a request to Osti, and then Osti provides us with a DOI a day later. Uh, We save that on our end. Um, So that's been working well for years. Um, Maybe, uh, yeah, the other thing I would mention there, for some of the objects that we have since we're all mongodb based so we use mongodb mongodb has object ids so sometimes i just use that object id for the mongodb as a persistent identifier but that's that's more for things behind the scene it's not things that people would actually type in or use as a as a resolving url right you Mm -hmm. could share it but it looks a little it's kind of it's kind of oblique or not very transparent um, our standard identifiers, back to the original question, that go into the DOI as a landing page, they're all uh, alphanumeric, right? They have a prefix for what they are, like in our case, MP, and then a number that just keeps going up in digits. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, so yeah, that's, uh, I think the big one for us really is OSTI DOIs and uh, managing those. Okay, hey, um,
0: for, for people who are like, getting into the DOI game or looking at that kind of stuff, like what do you see as kind of the, the trade-offs, the benefits, the disadvantages of like, um, you know, materials product has been around for a while. Why not just have the URL be materials slash, you know, MP one, two, three, four or whatever, <laughs> like, like that's, that's a global ID. Like why need, why need the, the DOI? Why do that? And like, are there any, um, like drawbacks, like 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 what can you associate or do you associate with the DOI with OSTI? Like like can you associate yeah. um, a band gap with the DOI or or is it is it, it like kind bad. of what do you do yeah. there before it's like okay now you need to come to the Materials Project website.
1: Um... Yeah, so there's there's two things here, right? One one I would say is maintenance. Um, like mm-hmm. the persistent of th- persistence of things takes more effort than one would think, right? So so from the UI side to have infrastructure in place, and from OSE side to have infrastructure in place to make sure that those UIs are persistent and unique over time, and then that that the links resolve. Um, that's something on our end that uh, we we basically would have to reinvent ourselves, right? We would have to um, we would have to make sure that anytime we change a skills detail page or we change a, um, a a URL or a schema of a URL or an identifier on our end, we would have to kind of make those redirects work for any future too, right? So that otherwise that persistent link is not really persistent. Right. What helps us with DOI is kind of normalize the level in between, right? You get that DOI, that that URL will always be there. Uh, it'll be ensured by OSTI to resolve to something or else we're getting warned and and, mm-hmm. and, and getting and <laughs> they'll be us. let's put it that way but we can go behind the scenes and actually update the metadata on the ui side and change urls on our end so even if our quote unquote persistent identifier changes or our url changes or even our domain name changes like things like mm-hmm. that right? right if we restructure in the future we can just go and update a metadata record for it but papers like publications that are printed and unchangeable will have the doi not our possibly changing uh urls right so it's a i think it's a it's even though you could do technologically to could do that yourself i think the time frame is something that people uh kind of lose perspective of right like we could probably do this for five years or four years then new people come in new people go out and those links don't go anywhere anymore right um so maintainability, I think, is one thing. And then to your question of what you can associate with the DOI metadata, um, I think our our biggest part and uh, that that we do is we use uh, what's called RoboCrystallographer, which kind of de- gets descriptions, uh, which basically based on machine learning that 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 we get for structures based on the information that we calculate about that structure, and you get a paragraph that is very depending on that structure or that material. And then we can take that description, auto-generate it from our database entries and send it into the metadata for uh, the DOIs. What that does down the road is those DOIs and that metadata is picked up not, auto, not only by OSTI's Data Explorer, right, which, were, which is kind of their search index search engine, mm. but also by, um, uh, by Google Dataset Search. Right? So all our entries are, because they have DOI metadata, are in the Google Dataset Search. And that description that I just talked about that's auto-generated for each material becomes searchable too. So you could go and kind of like have other search engines, search search, um, providers do the work in terms of indexing for you. And uh, just by maintaining metadata that's contained in something as generic as a DOI. So I think those are the two biggest pain: maintainability to recap, and then getting exposed to search indexes and search engines. That's the big one for the UI metadata.
0: Okay, yeah, that, that sounds great. And um, just for for our listeners to, to go into a, a bit, how those connect, um, you know, like, in terms of the findability principles, there's, you know, the, the F1 is about the identifiers, and then um, F2 is about metadata schemas for findability, and it, it sounds like, you um, you know, Osti has these these schemas that that, that in turn, in turn, term, term, I, I guess they also publish schema. dot org, dataset schemas or whatever something that's going to be picked up by Google Dataset Search. It sounds yes. like.
1: Yes, I um, think I think that that's what's happening behind the scenes. I don't know the details for that. I know it shows up on Google Dataset Search. Yeah, that's the advantage of being being linked into <laughs> into. <laughs> Established schema like DOIs, right? Uh, There's a lot, a lot fallen from it. Where I really only needed to be diligent in terms of keeping the metadata up to date and providing good metadata to DOI, but everything from then on out from us and their service kind of just trickled downstream without having to actually intervene or do anything. Um, So it's not like we have to put data on schema.org or we have to come up with the with the with the schema for the metadata. It's established, right?
0: yeah, that's a really cool integrated service. So yeah, like, as you mentioned, it's not like, okay, we have our identifiers now a separate a separate thing. We want to determine what metadata we need for findability. And then separate from that, you know, we need to submit it to search engines. It's sort of like, Thank hey, OSTI, you know, and they're, they're like, we're going to give you a DOI. Here are the fields exactly. you need. We're going to like submit it to these search engines, you know, make it available to Google Dataset search. And that, that's, that's exactly. pretty great. Um, so that's a really yeah, nice yeah. service to, to hook into. Um, Okay, uh, now th- this is for like the the materials. But now, now what about? And we went over this on the on the call uh, before a little bit. Like you mentioned, there's uh, like a Nomad service. But um, you know, apart from like the metadata, where you can like you know get information, general information about a material in the landing page, um, mm-hmm. like chemical composition, all that stuff. In terms of the actual like raw data that goes into stuff. Um, how is that stuff resolved or like linked to or yeah identified all that stuff
1: um so the road we've taken um and and, and you're kind of already mentioning the different levels that go into data right you start on the raw level you start on the simulation input level then your your high performance computing comes along and and spits out calculation output that's pretty big that we wouldn't kind of just push out to the public and say like here are five terabytes of data and you can download it unstructured, right? So that yeah. so it comes from that raw data that we get derived, collection derived data that eventually goes down to the few hundred gigabytes that we actually put out to the website, right? Yeah. Um so at those different levels, as I said, we have the DOIs on the on the on the website level and for the data that is being distributed through the API to our to our users. Um, but on the raw data level we're as we're backing up data in our data pipelines and as we're generating derived collections from that raw data we are also pushing it to nomad which is which basically is a is a targeted service for raw uh simulation material simulation data some yeah. of that is uh there's different codes that you can run for materials research uh one we the one we run is vasp and all those vasp output files that come out of our calculations uh the ones that we actually use to define our materials and our end product that those go to nomad and then nomad um, has APIs and download services and in- interfaces for people to re- retrieve that back. So the way we link it then is um, is on our materials detail pages, the ones that are getting DOIs, there is a list of tasks. We call them tasks. There's a list of calculations basically that make up those materials, right? And each of those calculations has a link to Nomad for the raw information. So you could through the inter- through the interface either by, by clicking and say like, oh, that's the material I'm interested in. I would like to reproduce the calculation or get an output an output file that maybe I can't get through the API because it's too big. So I'm going to go to Nomad and just download those files that way, or I can use the, their API to retrieve uh, a full set of downloads based on, on MP. And it also works the other direction so people that go to nomad and find materials project they see they get a link and a referral back to the actual derived data on our platform where they get and and so yeah it's we were trying to be we're trying to cover the full stack that way from the raw data all the way up to the to the derived data and the data we provide on the on for the api um without basically reinventing the wheel too much. So as I said, we're relying on Nomad as as a service to provide our raw calculations, and we're, pro- we're relying on DOI to provide metadata for a lot of our, our entries.
0: Okay, yeah. cool. So uh, in the case of Nomad, do, do you kind of delegate to them? Like they'll kind of mint an identifier, and that, that's kind of like the thing that you track around an MP side, like um. this, is, this is like, the data set in nomad or does it have a doi or yeah you identify like
1: the i i think they have a they have a hash they create for every upload that you that you provide right so um you're basically referring to that unique id that's sort of it's either a i don't remember exactly it's either an md5 some they use as an identifier or it's a simple uuid Mm -hmm. where they just generate for that upload you can get to that upload product which can can include multiple calculations depending on how you organize it and then there's subpaths how that file was organized and we kind of we kind of we knew as we uploaded how we structured it when we moved it to a and we're using that information internally to identify it as we come back right so the the actual doi is on our end i would say so the materials detail page is the one that has i think the umbrella doi and i would consider that also the umbrella doi for the raw data because mm-hmm. you can get from the landing page, you can get to that raw data and you can kind of look at it. So we're not we're not using multiple ones for different ones because because the, the material is also made up from multiple structures. So kind of like putting DOIs on a too smaller product just explodes the space too much. If we took all our millions of structures that we calculated and put, put DOIs on it, it would be a for quite a chaos. So we are kind of like an organizational platform that way that we decide what makes up a unique, unique material and mm-hmm. what would be a representative structure for that material. And then we put a DOI on that and that leaves was with hundred fifty thousand, which is still a lot, but it's not in the millions. Right. So so that's been that's been probably the biggest decision to make at the beginning. And also when you start to uh, start to talking to ASTI or start thinking about DOIs is what is your unit? that represents a DOI or that you want to assign a DOI mm. to, right? And in a in a research space, material science research space, for us it was our MP materials that we defined. But for other research domains it might be not as easy. Cause are organizing your hierarchy in your objects that you're using to organize your data is a little different. Right. Um, but again, you can't go too small. You can't go like on a file by file basis and give every file a DOI. That's not really manageable. So you want to Want to find a hierarchy that, that encapsulates a full uh, uniquely identifiable data set in a way and for us that's materials
0: okay yeah no, i appreciate that uh that concern about consistency boundaries and like what you want to term is like yeah. an entity and it's like okay there's a material and maybe this is the preferred structure now but something else is later but the the id thing is is at this level and, and yeah having to choose choose that leveling um, yeah. Cool. Uh, I, I want to dive a little bit more into accessing the data. You know, you mentioned APIs a lot. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, one of the, you know, like the principle A11 is kind of about a standardized communication protocol. And like, you mm-hmm. know, this could be as general as like HTTP or JSON <laughs> API. But but I, uh-huh. I'm kind of curious, you know, in particular from like a a programmatic standpoint, you know, like like, like For a human, like their protocol might be go to the materials detail page, look down for a section for like tasks and like click on the link for the nomad data set. But in terms of, if you're a machine, like like how might you like, um, operate with, with a system? Like, what does that look like? Just, just a broad stroke of like how you kind of navigate links through the API and then like, like, yeah, like, like what is the machine? Um, interface kind of look like in a broad stroke?
1: Yeah. So so all of our APIs are RESTful APIs um, and all of our RESTful APIs have Python clients for it. Um, most of the research that, that happens is in the Python space. So we provide Python clients for it. Uh, we call our Python client to our API MP Rester. And um, that MP Rester, because you specifically mentioned Nomad and how to track that data, uh, also has a... Um, a convenience function that allows you to get the download link from Nomad based on MPI information that you give it. So you could query and you could ask for MP IDs and say, like, I want this list of files and this list of MP IDs and, and task IDs and give me a download link that is Ooh. that I could click, basically, or that I could follow and programmatically download that. So if you wanted to do this all programmatically, you could you could use our Python tools, our Python client, and, and just the same way you query our information, our API, you could get a, a download link that the machine could just follow and retrieve uh, uh, the objects from Nomad. Um, so we're making sure to kind of plug those holes, even though they're not within our infrastructure, but our clients and our convenience function are trying to make sure that, that machines can read it. Um, as supposed for our own data that we that we uh, ship outside and that we do we provide through the API a lot of it is um, organized around PyMogen, which is our analysis software and has the objects that defines the structure defines a uh defines input objects output objects and so on and uh, serialization for that is also defined in PyMogen, and we kind of use that in our API models um, to define the models and keep them consistent so um, all our resource endpoints on, on in our APIs are basically defined around objects that already exist in PyMogen or are a compilation of objects, a derivation of objects, right? Um so there could be a material that contains a list of structures, right? So the material definition is maybe maybe custom, but the list of structures is something that people know from our PyMagen libraries. Um so that way, at least through the API and using Python and reading the analysis. Tools, software, and and documentation like like PyMogen's people are kind of familiar going in and out of the API, and it's kind of transparent without even knowing that there's an API behind it. Uh, to the extent that sometimes we talk about the AP, people talk about the API, and they actually mean the client. So that's just from, <laughs> from an engineer's perspective. <laughs> um, but I think that's that's a good thing. So people in our space expect those things to be pretty transparent, and I could say for the DOIs too. Oste has uh, so for the metadata too Austi has an uh, an API they call e-link um and that's also something we can integrate if we wanted to retrieve uh, metadata information from e-link based on the device that we that that they minted for us right um so and and we do that already in for our landing pages if you click on a DUI it uh, it, it resolves and you could retrieve that same description from from e-link or from us it's 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 either either or right um yeah. Uh yeah, I think that's that's probably the most of the things I could mention for interoperability on 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 MP side. Um
0: yeah, I mean yeah, that that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I remember that like uh it's kind of like the the schema, the model is specified kind of at, in Python um and yeah. You know, you kind of have this JSON marshaling, serialization, deserialization. Yes, um, so that's yes. sort of consistent. So if you kind of want to know, like, well, what is this? Like, like, what is a site? Like in, in this JSON document, I see like this site field. What what does that mean? And you can yeah, yeah. you can go and see in the Python code like what a structure site is, and yes, you can sort of interpret its semantics by like what methods you do on a site and that that sort of thing. Um, so it really yeah. integrates well with like. People using Python, so if they're using Python, then like it, it kind of makes sense. Um, yeah,
1: from a technical perspective, I think what one thing that's interesting is where do you define your models, right? So if I talk as an engineer now, mm-hmm. is uh, the API needs the models and your client library needs the models, right? And those right. models need to be kind of consistent. So when you update your API, how do you update all the clients too, right? um And I think we currently have two approaches. I think for the for our main API, we have a, a, a and it's called Emmet. It's a it's a library underneath the API that contains all the models. And then our client depends on it and the API depends on it. And we kind of keep the versions in sync, right? As we deploy and as we go through uh, versions for clients and versions for the API. For the contributor data and the API we use there, I'm using a dynamic client that basically makes objects and makes definitions in the client based on the API spec that's saved for that API. So there's a JSON definition that you can retrieve from the API server. Mm. So once you link up, once you initiate your, and instantiate your client, it retrieves that API spec from the server and defines itself based on that API spec. So I don't have to actually make client updates based on redeploying APIs, right? I just redeploy, there's a new JSON spec that's pretty standard for a- open API and it's standard for formerly known Swagger, right? So oh, right. it's all open API principles, right? So it has a Swagger spec, it has an open API spec. That open API spec is retrieved, and a client just sets up itself basically based on a definition it gets from there. So um, that that way you could, yeah, you could um, you could basically reinstantiate the object based on a definition that you get from that open API specification. Which is which is nice too but it, it, they all have their advantages disadvantages in terms of how well they work for our main API we opted for keeping them very well defined in a kind of core library that defines the models and then the client uses those uses that core library to to do the serialization and to do the instantiation on the client side I hope that makes sense but I say you're like you you're, you're retrieving right there's a pymagen object there's a serialized pymagen object in the in the database, right. the API, re- like when you send a request, the API retrieves it, the client gets it. You could just return JSON, right? You could just like, here's a dictionary, or you could make this thing in an actual PyMagen object again. But on both ends, you kind of need the models for it, right? On the server side and on the client side, and you have to keep them consistent.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I can see that how that that
1: can work well for,
0: for the main client when a lot of times what people want to do is they want to Work with PyMatGen like and do Python-based analysis. So yes. by by tying like the client logic to uh, you know Python code that that spits out JSON and has privileged fields that tell you you know this is the class that you want to instantiate and yes. know, the arguments to instantiate the class and that's what the serialized object is. Um, that that's yeah. really helpful. Um, but yeah, I also like love that approach of open API where. Yeah, you, know, you get like a, a JSON schema and like you kind of dynamically pull that and, and your client can provide Python conveniences in whatever language or whatever language you're using to kind of, uh, you know, go the methods based on on this hyperlinking discovery.
1: Basically, yes, exactly. So,
0: um, I want to talk a little bit about um, authentication and authorization. Ah. So like, you know, open is great, but you know, I'm sure there's, there's stuff that's like maybe pre-publication or isn't quite ready to, to, you know, share Mm -hmm. more broadly. So, so like, yeah. How does the materials project like manage kind of access and like who has access and what they need to. (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh, yeah that's a that's a very good question like uh, abuse comes into that equation too right you're providing a resource and computing resources in in form of a server and an api right so if everything was public and any bot could access anything they wanted then yes you, yeah. you might strain your resources more so uh in in terms of authentication and authorization um we we use uh, OAuth mostly we have a what's called a uh a microservices API gateway. It's called Kong that runs in front of our backend services and takes care of all the authentication. And there's basically we I think right now we provide Facebook, Amazon, Google, GitHub. So there's four or five different OAuth providers that you could use to log into our to our system. And then we really only are email based. So it's not there's not much information, more information that we kinda retrieve other than maybe your institution, if you've provided voluntarily, there's some some secondary registration step that you could do. Um, And then each of those accounts gets an API key, right? So for programmatic access to our resources, you will always have to use the API key. But with interactive access through our website, you can access somehow high-level view anonymously. So you don't need to necessarily be logged in. Some of the data that you can retrieve programmatically through the API with an API key only, you can view or look at publicly right. on our website, right? So that's not that's not necessarily all directly uh, uh, on the same level because uh, um, accessing programmatically is a lot heavier on resources than accessing and viewing in a browser, right? so um that combination of API key and email is basically all we use to authenticate people in our service and then there is a resource level authorization right so for our for most of our data our our core data is base, is is all public there is one endpoint that um where we provide charge densities that are pretty big that's like in total of five terabytes Dataset, but also that one we want to make public eventually. But hmm. as we roll things out, and as we roll out new and heavier API endpoints, those are um, basically managed with ACL groups, so access control lists, right? And so, so your API key and your account becomes part of a of a group, and then our Kong, our micro uh services gateway checks whether you're in that group and forwards your request to the upstream so to the to the backend server right so our backend servers don't do any authorization uh, uh, any um authentication our backend servers only do potentially resource level authorization right that's that's the difference uh the best, best way to see this is now with uh with contributed data right so you're you're adding data to material's project and you want your project to be private for a while before you actually allow it to go public and your paper comes along and you're going to cite it and stuff right right? so in that preparation process uh, we're using that same mechanism but the api on that side also has resource level authorization so when you have to be in a certain group or you have to be the owner of that project to actually get certain contributions or their structures or their attachments and everything like that so our core data is has i don't there's other than this one example of having an, an, an endpoint, a resource that we only allow certain users, like maybe staff early on to access, yeah. it's all free, right? Like you, only, like you can access it anom- anonymously um, through the interfaces and you use the, pro- the API key to access it programmatically. On the contributed side, there's an extra level of authorizing on a project by project base, on a resource by resource space, right? And that's the, the principles are always uh, API keys in connection with ACLs. So that's, okay. that's it, but we don't, one other things in terms of authentication authorization, I would add is we're using, um, a service called portier, self self-deployed portier that does email based logins only, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it looks like an OA. Yeah. It looks like an OA service outside. So the infrastructure for me looks the same. If I'm talking to Google or if I whether I talk to Google or whether I talk to Microsoft, mm-hmm. I can also talk to Porti as an OAuth service. Um, and it's, it's all self-deployed and runs really, really well, because that was something we wanted to provide people that don't have any of the other accounts. Right. But we don't right. want to manage passwords. So we don't have any actual like critical infrastructure that that. Uh, yeah, that keeps passwords safe or keeps login safe and stuff. So we really only—if you want to log in with your email and you're not with any of the OAuth providers, um, you're gonna send an email, get like a one-time link to log in, and that's gonna log you in. Right. Okay, I'm
0: gonna to have to put that in the show notes. Uh, <laughs> do that.
1: Yeah, know. I'm getting, I'm getting yeah. technical, but uh, those are the—that's that, yeah. basically it. It's, so it's it's API keys and then access control lists, basically.
0: Cool. Before moving on a little bit to interoperability, I uh, want to ask a bit about metadata longevity and like how, how you kind of think about that. Or like, you know, things change, right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And like things go away, I guess, you know, materials might get merged into other materials if they they determine to be the same as another MPID. Like, like, how, how do you um, manage like longevity of metadata and make sure that it's kind of always available? Or, or, or is likely to be
1: yeah I I think dois help us a lot there um, as I said uh, so if we add a minimum the link between the DOI and our data product namely a materials detail page needs to stay intact right so the, the data on the materials detail page itself can change and go through versions yeah. Um while we're not really versioning the DOI link for it, right? So it's all—it's—it's it's more the idea of having the latest version always uh, publicly available. Um, in terms of the metadata in that DOI, if the definition of the definition of a material won't change per se, there might be like structures moving out in and out. There might be a different, slightly different, but still equivalent structure be used as the canonical one for that material, but the overall information is still the same material right and um so we we have mechanisms in place in addition to the doi where we where we could um deprecate materials right so it can happen that a material that we calculate we find errors and for those we have a mechanism that that allows us to tag them as deprecated and they're primarily excluded from the api and they're uh but you can still retrieve them through the api if you ask for them specifically right so we're trying to always provide the latest and greatest through our standard API queries and our standard interfaces, and also keep the DOI metadata for it available on OSTI if it needs updating. But um, there could be ways where we have deprecated tasks, old tasks, deprecated materials that don't make sense anymore, our calculations have updated, The simulation code has moved on. But we're kind of trying to keep it consistent going backwards. We're now in the game for like 11 years, so that's not something that we can yeah. guarantee for all of the 11 years that we've done it. But uh, going forward, we're, we've we've refactored our data infrastructure and pipelines to to make this more likely to be still still fully available. Um, yeah, last word on the DOI records on the DOI metadata. Um, we regularly rerun. Um, Things like the Robo crystallographer that I talked about earlier to get the latest description. So if there's updates in codes that generate that metadata, and in, uh, in in, in OSTI we can we can send programmatic updates to them, keep it maintained. I don't think that guarantees longevity on the scale of glacial times uh, but it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> it guarantees it guarantees at least for the lifetime of the project i think that's what we mostly look at so as long as the project materials project is funded and alive then we can that's the longevity that we're we're looking at right okay. uh, and i All think right. that's the best we can do
0: yeah yeah uh in terms of like i guess it's related to longevity or kind of like forks and longevity like like just going into interoperability a bit. If like someone wants to like Mm -hmm. use the stuff from materials project, like what, what's kind of the story around, um, and you already touched on this a little bit, but sort of how things are represented so people can map to different things. Like if, if someone gets, um, you know, a, an API response and it's, it's a JSON document with a bunch of fields, like how do people know, like, the definition of one of those fields and what it means and is it supposed to be an integer and does it need to be greater than one and is it unique Mm -hmm. and and, and like and like so 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 if i want to port it to like my json schema or whatever like how how do do people how do people do that how do you how do you like you know manage the like the language of like what things mean
1: yeah i i think in the in uh on the lowest level, that's all your open API specification, right? So when you define define your models for an API and you set up your API and you you follow, we use Fast API, which is also open mm-hmm. API yeah. uh, compliant, right? Then um, that part of the documentation, as you write and define your field in the code and you write the help text for it, kind of trickles the, and the the requirements for it, like minimum value, maximum value. Those all that, those are all in the model definition for a field, right? Mm-hmm. So. And that's the only place we define them. That's why I've talked earlier about shopping or shipping around that same model in different places so we don't have to duplicate code, right? So um, in most cases, the fields in a model um, define their their requirements and auto-generate the documentation for it. Open API is pretty is the standard for it and you get kind of standard API docs redoc is another thing that we that we use so and in terms of documenting those fields and then all that information also goes into the into the JSON file that comes from the server the Open API spec so at a rudimentary level you can always retrieve that and 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 look at what the specifications are if you're a user of the PyMagen api uh, of rmp rester and a python client that Python client also has that information in the, in the doc strings, right? So you can basically, as you're writing code, you, you can get information about the fields and we're also regenerating it on the website as part of our documentation. So we're explaining like fields and endpoints Mm. endpoints there as much as we can. So we're trying to kind of that same ground, that same source truth of where our fields are defined and their limits are defined. We're kind of trying to, Move downstream. In the end, it's all I think open API specs. That's the common denominator. All right. Yeah. Cool. I uh, hope that answers the questions.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it's you know, a lot of people are still just writing README files. Um,
1: so like, yeah. <laughs> kind of. No, um, we don't.
0: <laughs> kind of like nice. Yeah. But yeah okay. Yeah. This yeah. this is an integer and this, yeah. Um,
1: yeah. I think the most powerful, as I said earlier, is having a a server that provides a. JSON mm-hmm. definition of itself at a URL, and it's kind of the open API Swagger strategy that's always been in place for a long time. Cool. So as long as you manip- as long as you operate around that and define your models um, to end up in in those definitions, then I think you're in a good place. Cool.
0: Yeah. Uh, we're sort of going to start wrapping up a little bit. I want to get to some of the, the reusable stuff. You know, uh, yeah. talking about like use licenses and, and provenance. I think the most exciting thing for me. Just, just from my past experience, um, uh, is is some of the provenance stuff, and like, like kind of yeah. schemas for describing provenance. Because I know there's sort of a whole rich, um, you know, vocabulary around the the fireworks software and stuff like that in Materials Project for how to how to track and communicate uh, and describe the provenance of how all this data stuff happens and presenting that to people. Can, can you? Talk a little bit about about that, how provenance gets represented and managed and communicated.
1: That's that's a good one. So there's a fireworks is our workflow software, right? And and you're right that basically whenever we set up a new workflow to calculate properties for a structure, uh, we keep track of that metadata as we calculate it. But that's mostly about... Uh, how the workflows went and how they get calculated it's more the input to those workflows as where the structure came from and that's mm-hmm. the the provenance that's kind of harder to keep track of uh, i would I would mention two things one um we have what's called structure notation language so when we get structures from somewhere else or we want we we generated them from a source like um, like a, a standard community database with structures that have been synthesized mm-hmm. um we mentioned that or we we keep a, we keep track in that original structure object that we used as input to our workflows right that includes references to in a format with Biptech and authors and stuff and who, who, who or but it also uh, contains structure transformation which is more helpful for a machine machine readable right so say you have a standard you have a starting structure that you that you somehow created or, or used as a as a template and then you apply transformation on that structure like replace this atom with this change change this angle whatever right and then you can apply you can keep track of those transformations and we keep track of those transformations through the through the process as part of the structure notation language object that we have um and then once the whole calculation is done then we come around and we match those structures together and the output we can go back to these original objects and and us ass- and kind of assign the provenance to our entry on the materials detail page so all our references, our authors, uh, the transformation that's been done to the file to the structure to arrive at at the input structure, those are all uh, still in place uh, on the final on the final materials detailed page. But it's it's a custom kind of approach a little in terms of how we gather the provenance for files. Um, mm. I would say um, on the workflow side, we we've also we used to be um, just calculating our own structures within the core group, right? So so in that case, we had full provenance as far as the workflow itself is contained. Like, like did the code make adjustments to make the calculation succeed, right? Um, those details of a calculation, uh, other than only the input and the output, and how many steps did it take and stuff like that. Um, but nowadays, we, we, we're also able to take MP-compliant calculations that collaborators have run And just parse them from their raw output in that case you don't have the workflow information anymore because we didn't run the calculation Mm -hmm. right um but i don't that part in terms of provenance is uh it's probably not the most important to keep track of because what people most importantly care about is credit right is my is my name somewhere assigned with that structure <laughs> is the transformation and how i arrived at that structure somewhere and is my paper assigned to it kind of those things right and the source of it so i can retrack where the what the history of that structure was um the workflow itself and how we ran the calculation and what the person did to do the calculation is mostly defined by its input parameters so as long as you have the vast version you ran with or the simulation version that you ran with and the input parameters that we all provide through our API for all our structures, it should be reproducible. So you don't need the workflow steps per se. If you want to use something other than our workflow software or something other than our, um, like, Atomate, which defines the workflows that we run on our structures, if you want to use something else or do it manually, it should still deliver the same result, right? All right. Just by the definition of input and output. Cool. Yeah, I appreciate you uh, talking about, like, the different...
0: Um... Facets of provenance that people might be interested, yeah. in. like, like like where was this originally published? Where is it sourced from? Versus like what did you do to it? We're using what yes. parameters, or or like
1: yeah.
0: all these different things. Are like what do people mean by provenance? Um, so
1: yeah, you're
0: absolutely right. Really cool. One um, one other thing I wanted to, to to mention briefly. I think it's still the case. Um, is just I want to touch on usage license because that's really important for people being able to use yeah. data and is it true still that uh, all the materials project data is creative commons by attribution under that license
1: yes yes very much so we we on our latest website release we have put out a new website that's all in the cloud that's that's started in may 26 and for do, for that there's also a terms page and we basically for our core data have creative Commons attribution for, um, but we're also starting for uh, contributed data to give people the choice, either to be Creative Commons attribution or Creative Commons public domain. Basically, those are the two that we we mostly mm-hmm. we mostly decided to use, because um, the idea is if you we are a project that wants to provide data to the public, right? We're publicly funded. So the license that we use should not be rest- like, if you're choosing to contribute to a materials project, you cannot have a restrictive license offline. You can't share this with anybody. <laughs> so um, and and then and Creative Commons has been the one for, for data too that has allowed us to um, make the data shareable. And but the most important is credit, right? Can you, like as soon as you attribute, as long as you attribute where that data came from to the original author, yeah. and you cite as uh, you cited the, the references that they ask you to rec- to cite. You're, you're in good shape with our with our licenses. So yeah, it's still comments It's still Creative Commons. Uh, we're adding public domain to it. That's maybe the only update I would I would have. Cool,
0: yeah. great. Uh, yeah. All right, I should probably start start wrapping up a little bit. Um. Uh. Thank you so much for joining. Patrick, is there anything else you'd like to, like, sort of uh, leave our, our listeners with? Like, any kind of yeah. advice? Um, and, and maybe also, like, how they can get in contact with you if they, they want to, like, you know, uh, get in contact oh, with Patrick. reach out. Yeah. Uh...
1: Well, yeah, I, 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 I'm sure you can find my 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 email, and if you Google my name, you can find my email online. I like, <laughs> leave that up to people. Um, I'm also on social media um, and so on. Uh, it's it, in the end, I would, in terms of advice, um, I, I think there is there there's a lot going on in terms of uh, kind of making data data fair, and it's a little easier for making documents fair right like having pdis find a pdfs findable having mm-hmm. pdfs kind of like having metadata interoperable uh on the data level it becomes a little bit more complicated and i think that uh, we should strive to get as close as possible to get to to fair but it might not for be feasible for every domain right to yeah. every level so i i think the goal should not be that that we can only accept repositories that are 100% fair and 100% that fulfill everything as repositories that that are good repositories if that makes sense right so yeah. so any maybe that is an advice so that, that it's not like i have to do this all at once i can kind of like i can go step by step and i can i can try to use um, uh, follow best practices and and i would also say if i follow best practices and use existing tools it, it it a lot of the things that are related to fair are kind of falling out of it as long as i'm not trying to kind of always run my own right so so if i'm in the open source space and i keep my eyes open um there's a lot of tools out there that can help um uh, i think the caveat always is domain science specificity. like like you need an expert you need to kind of be an expert in that domain uh in that scientific domain to really dig deep into fair and what it means to be reproducible right now again like what we do is it's it's millions of millions of hours of high performance computing so does that whole thing need to be reproducible <laughs> right that's 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 a, that's a lot of money right so yeah. but on an individual level a user should be able to kind of reproduce our data if they want to but they won't reproduce the whole project so you won't have to kind of you won't have to kind of have full coverage of everything that you possibly ever done as a project that that that, um, and I think that's an ongoing problem. Is I think the data versioning is something that I've, that that we're still trying to get better at it. But in the end, the most important part is to have the latest and greatest data available to the public. And then when it's cited, you need you need versions for what kind of set of data was accessible or was accessed at that time. And maybe we still have backups in the ba- in the background for it. And maybe we still have uh, versions for it. But the API and everything will keep moving on because that's that's too big a problem mm. in the fair space for data. Um, so yeah, those are those are the things that I have. Start okay, small. Uh, <laughs> Start small.
0: Yeah. One last thing. Um, do you have any recommendations for for who who
1: I should invite to be on this podcast? Oh, oh, that's that's a tough one, and it has to be fair related, right? Um, <laughs> Or machine. Well, science actually, science. yeah, I would I would probably, uh, you know, Marcus uh, Scheitgen at Nomad. I, mm, I think he, right. would be a, he would be a good one, too. Okay, yeah. Ask. yeah. Uh, he does a lot in that space, too. All right, yeah. cool. All right, uh,
0: that's it for today. Uh, thank you, Patrick, for, for joining us. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, and I hope you join me again next time for Machine-Centric Science.